Welcome back to season two of the Love Letters to Virginia podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Pazmino. Thanks for listening. Today, we're going to be speaking with Heather Hakimzadeh. She is the curator at Virginia Mocha, that is the Virginia Museum of Contemporary Art, an alum of George Washington University. She has spent the better part of the last decade in Virginia Beach. Heather is a former Navy intelligence officer and a former educator for Phillips Collection. Since her tenure at Virginia Mocha, she has organized over 75 exhibitions. Hi, Heather. How are you? I'm good. How are you? You have a pretty unique background. Yes. So what led you to serve in the military? Well, um, I am the middle daughter um, of three from the middle of the United States. I'm from Indiana. And um, I adore my parents. I had a great parents, but they weren't good savers. And um, as I'm moving through high school, we're having conversations about college. And I realized there's not a lot of opportunity for my parents to help me with college. Um, and so I knew I didn't want to be in debt. Um, and I knew I wanted a kind of a leg up in the world. And we had an ROTC program in high school that I took part of. And it just seemed like a really good start for me, like a really good place to begin my life. And um, they did offer me a full scholarship. Um, and I did um, have the opportunity to lead and to travel and to live overseas. Um, but my heart wasn't in it. It really wasn't uh, where I wanted to spend my life. Um, but it was a really good place for me to start. That is really inspiring. Thank you. Yeah. I I had a kind of a similar situation, but I know I'm not nearly as disciplined as I would need to be <laughs> to take on that. But that's amazing. And thank you for your service. Oh, thank you. So were you always more compelled to enter into the art world? Absolutely. You know, if I had had the right encouragement at 17, if somebody had told me in high school, hey, yeah, you know, there actually is a way for you to have a living, to make a life with art. I think I don't, I don't think I would have gone in the military, honestly. It, it was, it was something I always like really loved and had a seek. It was one of these like, oh, this is, I would literally say, this is my pipe dream. I wish I could go into the arts. Um, I really thought I might want to be an artist. Um, but when I got out of the service and I kind of had like this moment of crisis, I'm like, oh my gosh, what now? Like, what do I do now? And I was having these informal interviews with um, contractors and I was just like, Ugh, I don't, this is not who I am. Um, and I just made the decision that like, you know what, if I'm going to devote the time to do it, it's going to have to be something that actually, that I actually love, that I actually feel passionate about. Um, that's something that can sustain me for longer than, you know, four or five years. It, it had to be something that I, I knew would get me excited for the rest of my career. And so I went back to it. That's incredible. What do you think you might have done differently if you hadn't joined the military? Mm. Uh, if, if I hadn't joined the military, I don't really don't know what I would have ended up with. If I'd had more encouragement, I would have probably tried to go into art school. I probably would have tried to become an artist. I think I would have really enjoyed illustration. I think I would have really enjoyed um, industrial design if I'd wanted to do something a little more lucrative. 
Um, but I, yeah, I think if, if somebody had pushed me, it, and if that hadn't been the case, I probably would have ended up being another kind of historian. Um, I love history. I love the fact that two things that I'm really excited about meet, um, and I get to have, you know, a career that involves it. So that being said, do you use a lot of your your love of history in the process of building an exhibition? Um, yes. Well, you know, as an art historian, it, it is absolutely a big part of um, how I look at art. You know, I, I, I feel a responsibility um, towards art history. I feel a responsibility towards our community. You know, when you're selecting artwork, you you think, you believe, you hope that you're selecting artwork that is not only relevant right now, but will be relevant like 100 years from now, 50 years from now. I, I hope that people use things I've written and talked about and exhibitions I've shown as primary source material for their PhDs um, in our history 50 years from now. So it is it is part of what I really do think about when we select artwork to bring into the exhibition. It's also something I really like to talk about when I'm talking about artists and, and um, the art we bring into the museum. I like to kind of show that connection to history. Like you think something's very new and very weird and it's it's fun to kind of like show somebody that connection to say, oh, well, no, actually, if you if you look at these 10 artists that preceded this, artwork you can see there's a connection and that this is actually not as new as you think um and in, and when I sometimes when I take people through the gallery spaces or I'm giving a tour I, I I try to say you know every single bit of art was contemporary art at one point when every single piece of art is made it's made in the time <laughs> you know that it's relevant in yeah. um so you know it's it's only time that makes things historic so, um, yeah, I do think there's a lot of connections between um, art history um, history, and what we show in the galleries now. What so far has been the most rewarding aspect of your work? Mm. Convincing people that contemporary art is awesome. <laughs> you know, I, it, it's, we, we live in a unique, the museum is situated in such a highly transient area, we don't have a built-in support, like a, a, a super robust, we do, I should, that's not true. We have a really amazing creative and artistic community that support MOCA, and I am absolutely, can, you know, appreciative of them. Um, but we have a really big population here in Virginia Beach. It's the largest city in the state, and um, we don't have, like, significant numbers um, who understand contemporary art is for them. And so it's our mission to consistently convert people and to make under, them understand that what they come in and what they see in the walls actually relates to them in this moment. And that that is really cool and important and that we have space for conversation and dialogue um, for them in our walls. And it's really exciting when you see somebody get turned on to art and to contemporary art and um, I know I've been part of that experience. I've had people relate that to me. And I think that is by far the most rewarding thing um, in my in my um, job is just to see just to see people kind of light up and get tickled and really start to enjoy 
um, what they're seeing on our walls. Are there any tools or approaches that you adopted from your previous experiences to what you're doing now? That's interesting. Uh, I think tools, yes. I mean, the military really helped me because I was an officer in the military. I was an intelligence officer. Um, and I oversaw lots of projects and I oversaw leading people. And um, it made me very good at at putting together a project. Um, I was able to kind of like step into the role as curator fairly easily, not just from the scholarship point, but from the more practical point of like how you put together a big project, how you communicate with people, how you um, kind of get things lined up down the road. Um, and so that was really great. And I also like, I think it really helped me understand you know, because you know, you get so immersed in what you're doing and you love it so much, you forget that other people, you know, it takes sometimes to remind you, like, not everybody is going to understand this the way you understand this. And it really kind of stays in the back of my mind that, like, yeah, not everybody's going to understand this. So how do I present this in a way that helps them approach the artwork and, and understand what's being conveyed here? So yeah, so there are there are lots of little things, um, but most of them have to do with like managing people, managing projects, and managing expectations. I know each exhibition is several years in the making. Would you be able to kind of walk us through what that process looks like? Um, sure, very very loosely. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, actually, it, a lot of it just kind of starts with, um staying in the know with what's happening in temporary art, staying in the know with what's happening in your community and kind of just making connections in your head. And then when I start to get together uh, with our team and with my um, supervisor, we start to have conversations about like what we need to talk about, like what's happening and, and who we've looked at and who's really showing and doing something innovative and interesting and worth sharing and important that is important to share with our community and from there we move forward into making connections with that artist or artists um, and sometimes that's through a gallery sometimes that's connecting with them directly sometimes that's um oh I know so and so and there she showed them or maybe I can get an introduction it's really trying to find a way in it's about contacting artists you know, for, oh, gosh, I think I might have just skipped a step. You know, you formulate the idea for the exhibition. You kind of have a, a vision for it. You kind of have a description of what you'd like to accomplish. And then you start the build the building where you meet um, artists and, and you, you, you try to work on those relationships. And a lot of it is about relationship building because you're at basically asking people to lend you their artwork and to trust you with that and to, to trust you not only to keep it physically safe, which is, of course, what we do, but also that, you know, the artist's intention is being conveyed and what it is that they're trying to have a dialogue about is acknowledged and seen by your audiences. And so um, you, you spend a lot of time kind of building trusts, selecting artwork, um, and then you, once those decisions start to kind of start to coalesce, you start to figure out how you are going to build that in your own spaces and um, what the actual exhibition spaces are going to look like and the messages you're going to start putting out. And then you start connecting with um, other members of the team uh, from the preparator who helps me um, build pedestals 
just do everything, like how we're going to lay out walls, how we're going to build signs. If something needs to be built for order, um, special art handlers need to be brought in because of something. Um, you work with educators who are going to have to really, like I said, be the advocates in the spaces for tours for these exhibitions, um, visitor services, um, marketing, PR people. You really start kind of conveying your vision um, for the exhibition to everybody in the um, museum. And you also have to do all the paperwork and arrange the shipping um, again and and have everybody like read the plush releases and read all the writing you're doing. And um, then hopefully by the time you start doing the installation, everything's ready, everything gets shipped in um, and the big installation happens in the museum itself. And I hope that was clear. I know it sounds very messy. Um, it's clear in my head <laughs> um, how it happens. They're just, they're more, you, I, you tend to think, oh no, this is simple. I do this all the time. And then when you start to communicate it you're like oh actually this is a lot more complicated than, <laughs> than I than I thought it was so it sounds like your approach to building that rapport between you and the artist is always evolving mm -hmm. yeah yes I mean because it, it's different for each artist some um and it, it depends on where they are in their career or how they are, who they are as a person. You know, you have extroverted people, you have introverted people. Um, it's about really kind of understanding where they are coming from. Um, I find the biggest shortcut to building that rapport is really understanding their artwork. And if you can convince them or, or you know, in the course of your conversations, convey to them that you really have taken the time to understand what they're, trying to say with their work um that that trust is much more easily built so do you feel like it, it's different with each exhibition starting with a concept or are you starting with an artist or starting with a piece of an artist's work oh you just hit it i am had it, it's different every time it's different every time uh, and, and a lot of it again when we're when we're bringing in work we're not only um thinking about that artist but we're thinking about that artist in the context of the entire museum and and the museum's needs but also our history you know we we um Virginia Mocha doesn't actively collect artwork and so everything we bring in is loaned from other people it's it's everything is a temporary exhibition and we try not to repeat ourselves um, and we, we try to think, okay, well, we've already talked about this issue. Do we want to talk about this issue again? Is there something being said differently this time? Um, or it's, oh my gosh, you know, we, we have this important thing happening and we've never talked about it and why haven't we? Or it could just simply be like, this artist is the most amazing artist I have ever seen. And we are losing an amazing opportunity if we don't show them. So let's, let's bring them in. So there's this like, there's so many things that get talked about. And in fact, we tend to write it out. Um, the director, the, the deputy director of the museum and I will get together and whiteboard things and we'll, we'll, we'll write it out and um, really look at what, <laughs> what it is we think we're trying to do versus what we've done in the past and what we want to do in the future. So 
I know you also have a background in education. Does that come into play a lot with the work that you're doing right now? Oh, for sure. And in fact, when I when I was first hired with Mocha, I didn't I didn't intend on becoming a curator. I actually thought I wanted to be an educator, museum educator. Um, but because of my background, um, the director of exhibitions at the time said, you know, we really wanted to have a curator who actually comes from an educational background. Um, I was I was an educator for the Phillips collection while I was um, earning my master's degree. And um, and I said, you know, my, my reply was like, well, okay, but, you know, I'm, I've never curated. And she's like, well, we can teach you that, you know, but we want, we really definitely want you to curate with, with an eye as an educator. And um, that is absolutely a big part of, of how I curated. It's a big part of the, the conversations I had. And that goes from everything from moving people through the space, moving through the people through safely through the exhibition space to what artworks get hung next to each other. Um, because I think art speaks to it. Artworks speak to other artworks. When you have artworks hanging in the same room, they're having a conversation with each other. And I think that's really important to consider as you're building an exhibition. Um, and it also affects things like um, labels and um, dialogue on the walls. I really am not a fan of art speak. I think it's elitist. Um, and I think if you're afraid uh, of plain language, then you might be afraid of having to defend your position. Um, and so I I really just don't engage with it. Um, I don't think it's helpful. So it is. it does kind of factor in to most decisions I make, but specifically the decisions on how our visitors um, encounter the gallery spaces. So what do you think sets Virginia Beach apart from some of the other places that you've lived? Well, for starters, it is a transitory city. We do have so many people between the tourists and the military um, shipping uh, people who kind of like come in and out quite a bit. Um, we, Hampton Roads is sinking faster than most other cities in the country. Most other, that city, Hampton Roads is a city, but most other um locations around the world were sinking pretty fast. Um, so climate change is particularly important here. Um, we're at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. So we're also kind of right at the start of some of the most important waterways um, in our country. Um, and all those things kind of factor into what's important. We're also kind of uh, in a really historically important space, you know, um, between Jamestown and um, Fort Story, uh, Comfort Point. Uh, we've been the location of incredibly important history for our country, and it doesn't get a lot of discussion, but um, it's, still, it's still felt here. It's still very present. Um, and all those things, I think, really do make a difference um, in... in in the in the way the community shapes and looks at the world. Have you gotten a chance to vote on your favorite Maiden VA piece? No, and I will not vote. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I kind of like them all. 
Um, yeah, yeah, it's a Sophie's choice for me. I can't really, I can't really pick. Sometimes I'm able to guess. Sometimes, like, I, I can guess what the judge is going to come in and really like. But um, um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't choose favorites usually. The Joa Burroughs, the printmaker. I really, I really thought that she was, yeah, going to be a standout to the judge, and she was. Um, uh, you know, it was like we had a really good maiden VA this year. It was really hard to like. Say, oh, easily that one. Oh, that one because um, so many of them were just so good. So um, yeah, I kind of knew which one she might be looking at, but I'm I'm always a little surprised. And I, I guess I think that's a really good point I'd, I'd like to make too. Is like, you know, different judges, different jurors make incredibly different decisions. Um, sometimes I, sometimes I have artists who get upset with me because they don't get selected. And it's like, but it, it really changes every year, um, who, what will be selected because it's so, such a subjective thing. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about living apart? Absolutely. That actually is supposed to open at the end of this week. Um, it's full title is living apart of segregation in the 21st century. And um, this came about because a professor from Christopher Newport University, he's a um, professor of geography, um, Dr. Johnny Finn had been working on, um, he's a map maker, and he had been looking at the historical effects racial segregation from the 20th century. Um, and he had had an opportunity to build an exhibition with another museum. It fell through. Um, and so he was introduced to us through Leah Gottlieb, who I believe is the chairman of the board of trustees for the St. Paul Community Development Corporation, which is a nonprofit working to um, increase economic prosperity in the St. Paul's um, area of Norfolk, as well as other adjacent neighborhoods. Um, and uh, he asked if we would be interested in showing this exhibition. And it's not an art exhibition, which is really unusual for us, um, but what he's doing seems so important that that we said yes, and it's going into our one of our community galleries called the Fleming Gallery at MOCA. And it's centered on the idea that in uh, during part of the New Deal, uh, the 1930s, um, there were many um, uh, programs put into place to help Americans with home, home ownership. Um, and as part of this, uh, the federal government set forward teams throughout the country to literally rate every neighborhood. Um, and they, they were rated A through D or green through red. Um, and um, the ones that were in green or like A through C all got different levels of um, programming to um, federal help to help the residents of those neighborhoods buy their own home. The ones that were in the D neighborhoods or the red line neighborhoods were denied all of that um, that aid and the red they were they were considered to be risky and hazardous um, and it would not be likely that the people there would um, prosper or be able to pay their loans back and um, a that was not true and b it was almost 
solely racially motivated. It was basically these teams went through and chose the black neighborhoods in our country to rate them low, to deny them access to federal aid to, to have home ownership. Um, and it wasn't just that, like there was so many racial um, segregation laws put into place to prevent the prosperity, excuse me, <laughs> sorry, um, to prevent the um, access to prosperity for the, the folks that lived in those neighborhoods. And so, um, but you can see the consequences of those decisions of those policies um, in the 1930s and how they affect those same neighborhoods today. Because even though in the 1960s, a lot of those laws like racial covenants um, in, in um, mortgages were put into place in the 30s, they were outlawed. They once they were in place, they're really hard to dislodge. They're really hard to like then get people caught up because um, in our country, wealth tends to come from home ownership. When you, you when you inherited a house or a property from a relative, your own wealth increases. Well, if you're never given the opportunity, if your family is never given the opportunity, and in fact actively blocked from um, home ownership or property ownership or business ownership that wealth can never build. Um, and as a result, um, these neighborhoods are ha have tremendous challenges and problems. They tend to be um, near more environmental hazards. They have less green space. They have less home ownership. They have less um, insurance coverage. Um, it's a whole myriad of, of problems that affect almost every facet of life. And they stem from these original redlined areas from the 1930s. And this exhibition shows that. Um, we start with this kind of like um, base map of our region. It's predominantly Norfolk, um, um, Newport News, Hampton, Portsmouth, um, some of Chesapeake, not so much of Virginia Beach, not because Virginia Beach um, didn't have these problems, but because at the time in the 30s, Virginia Beach was mostly farmland and not um, growing suburban areas. So they, they didn't, it didn't uh, show up as redlined at that time. But you can see if you overlay these redlined areas from the 30s with like tree coverage right now, you'll see they almost exactly line up. And so um, it really is an exhibition that explains and explores the ramifications of these racist laws and how they are affecting those neighborhoods now. Do you have anything else that you would like to talk about before asking my last question? Uh, only like if these are if these are folks that haven't come into Mocha before, I, I, I really want folks to kind of come and give it a chance. It's something um, that's near and dear to me. Um, we are open to the public. We're free to the public. Um, it's a wonderful way to spend time with somebody. It's a wonderful way to find gateways into conversations. Um, my family likes to joke that going to a museum with me is not like going to a museum um, by themselves, but like that's because I really look 
at what's in front of me and I ask hard questions and I ask hard questions of the people I'm with. And so <laughs> it really makes for amazing and interesting and engaging conversations. And I really hope that if you get the chance, you do that as well. And it's not even just us, any museum that you go into, like really look at it as an opportunity to have a, an amazing conversation. Most people do think that, you know, that going and seeing art is, is it's like a gotcha moment. Like, like there's some kind of test. It, there's no test. You know, you like it, you don't. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's okay. So someone who had a similar background to you and they wanted to pursue art, what kind of advice might you give them? If they wanted to be into curating, well, actually it's education. It's, it is go to school. Um, I would say that locally, TCC has an amazing art program. It's a really good art program to get started from. It's how I got started. Because uh, even though I had a degree, it was it was a bachelor's of science in policy and management. That wasn't going to get me into a museum. Um, so I went back to school through TCC. And then I went to ODU from there. And then from there, I went to George Washington to get my myself a master's. So education is good. But also um, take advantage of every opportunity, every internship every opportunity to volunteer, you know, get yourself in the spaces that you want to be in and have them know you. Um, and that is really the best way, I think, to kind of like find your way in. Thank you. Sure. Do you have a favorite place in Virginia? A favorite place in Virginia? Gosh, it's Mocha. <laughs> That's what I was hoping you'd say. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this today. My pleasure, Vanessa. You take care. You too. Bye. Do you have a hard time coming up with content ideas for your podcast? I find that there is nothing more embarrassing than all of a sudden being stumped in the middle of a conversation where it's like, I know I had more questions for you, but I just can't remember what they are right now. And that's why I'm trying Poddex. Poddex is the best all-in-one podcast idea generation tool. You get everything from episode ideas to interesting conversation starters for interviews, engaging discussions for your live streams, and even social media content ideas. With this tool, you don't have to spend weeks trying to come up with content for an episode or unique questions for your guests. Just shuffle the cards and pick one at random. Hit the record button and get started. Now you can make better content, have more fun while you're at it, and get your viral moment. All with Poddex. Head over to poddex.com and use code C4C.